Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Hey, 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 don't die. People are dying of uh, fentanyl overdoses. Did you know that? Yes, I I started reading about it a few years ago. We're going to look it up now. The overdose death rate. Okay, so we sat down and we're doing two of these. I was telling Bob, I, I can't talk that much. Bob, I can Bob talk all is day like, long. Bob can talk <laughs> all day long. All day long. So he can talk some more when the nighttime comes. It's here's amazing. The, the top states of overdose death rates are I'm just a, Maine is number one now per Maine? capita. Maine. Congratulations, Maine. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> You have become number one. They're number one. <laughs> We're number one. Rhode Island. Oh, no, wait. Maine is number 10. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, you read Starting, it upside down. I'm reading it upside down. <laughs> so Maine, yeah, you were shocked. It couldn't be Maine was the number one death no. rate. No, it's Maine is number 10. There. But obviously, they're, they're ODing. Rhode Island is number nine. Number nine. Eight yeah. is Delaware. Jesus. Now, do you think this is entrepreneurs? Seven, seven is Massachusetts. This is basically the same region of yeah, the but, Eastern Seaboard. Well, like if you're a dope dealer and you got a bunch of fentanyl and stuff, and you're like, "Hey, dude, where can we sell this shit, man?" Wow. And you're like, "Well, hey, Maine doesn't have any any drug problem there. Let's go there." And surprisingly, you know, Maryland. Is do you think that they are entrepreneur drug dealers that do that? I think there's gangs and there's gangs. like raconteurs. Raconteurs. Or whatever. Yes. Kentucky's number five. So number six is Maryland. Number five is uh, Kentucky. Number four is Pennsylvania. Number three is New Hampshire, where they begin every presidential election. Really? Number two is Ohio. My great friend John Kasich there overseeing that. And then number one is West Virginia, where Donald Theodore Trump was last night doing a rally. I noticed. So... I, I don't want to say, but when you look at so initially, go the, ahead and say. Initially, the thought was a lot of the a lot of the opiate overdose death rate is in Trump land, right? But in fact, I you know when you look at it, yeah, West Virginia, Ohio, New Hampshire's not a not Trump land. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania is a purple state. It went for Trump this time by a narrow margin. Um, so you would say Kentucky is, is Trump land. Uh, Maryland, so, Maryland is Hillary Clinton land. So the fact that, you know, these states are liberal to Massachusetts, the home of the Kennedys, the home of progressivism, um, Delaware, the, uh, Delaware is John, uh, the vice president guy with the, uh, Joe Biden state, right? Okay. Rhode Island. These are these are equal liberal states and conservative states. So we're just doing good work for either side. Yeah, it doesn't we don't matter. care. I want I want you know my third father-in-law Frank DeSarno said a wise thing when the Vietnam vets were coming home and everyone was scared of them and they were becoming drug addicts and and criminals and you saw the beginnings of this this disillusionment that PS, PTSD causes, and you saw it on the streets of America in 76, 77, 78. Um, I remember my brother-in-law was an old Italian New York uh, uh, 
a Democrat. Yep. And he says, the goddamn Republicans have said kins off to war. And the ones that don't die, it's the Democrats that take care of them when they come home. Right. So, so I just have always had that in my head. I was like 14. I was very impressionable. And I was like, it's like certain, certain political theory, you know, loves to go to war. And then there's an, another kind of political theory that loves to take care of, of the, the, the destruction of war. Right. So, I mean, you can disagree with me. I don't really care what you think, but that's, I'm just telling you what I grew up with and what I see. And that's the prism I see it through. So then it was obvious to me that this drug epidemic is somehow fueled by big pharma, wall street, greedy doctors. It was so obvious. Anybody that doesn't believe that is a fucking idiot. It was it was created by Purdue Pharmaceuticals. It was executed by the distribution company that distributes OxyContin across this land. They're all criminals. They all should be in prison. There's a, there's a lot of people in prison for a lot less destruction to our society. The, the, the entire leadership of marketing and the board of Purdue should be in prison, not find $400 million and laugh because they made $13 billion. Mm-hmm. They should be in fucking prison. And so should the people who got the alarms that so much OxyContin was being sent into certain hamlets of Kentucky that there was 100 pills for every citizen. They were supposed to warn the federal government that so much OxyContin was going into Kentucky and they didn't. Those motherfuckers there should be in prison. The doctors who kept prescribing these deadly drugs and their patients were dying and becoming homeless and helpless and infirmed should be in prison. But so the idea was, here's this thing that's very similar to the Vietnam War. You got this marching of of death and destruction. And I felt like, who are the people that are going to solve it? The fucking kind-hearted liberals. I hate to say it. And so now this is a moment in time for the addict community. Are we really going to help people that we wholly disagree with politically and socially who are homophobic and racist and, and, and have completely different mindsets of us, the recovery community, right? Are we going to? And my answer five years ago was yes. Fuck yes, I want to. How else are you going to enlighten somebody that gay people should have right to marry? How else are you going to influence the culture but to have dialogue and compassion and love for the people that are suffering in Kentucky, in West Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in the rural parts of America? We have to do this, people. We have to, because I believe it's a way we can change our nation. I really do believe that. I don't know a lot of white nationalist, nationalist sober people. I don't. And I know hundreds of thousands of sober people. I don't right. know a lot of like ignorant, uninsightful, homophobic, racist, white nationalists who are sober and speak the language of recovery. So couldn't people getting sober and learning the gift of sobriety and the gift of recovery and the gift of compassion and the gift of kindness have an influence on this horrible kind of plague on our society that's been going on for the last two years. I believe it can. 
And and if everybody in my cynical part is like, well, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. No, I got to fight against that and say, no, it's up to me. I'm a sober person. I need to get to those people and say, listen, brother, I love you. You're a little nuts, man. You're a little nuts, like you know, like Joe Strummer would say. Right. Like you're a little nuts, man. You're a little wacko, Thelonious. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Wise up a little bit. Right, you got to wise these people up, and the way you wise them up is you have a gift, you have something that they desperately are dying to have, which is recovery and sobriety. They don't right. know about it in Kentucky, in Huntington, West Virginia. I met this kid who was lucky enough to get out of there and end up in the Temecula rehab that I had, and then ended up in L.A. and in sober living, and he's doing good. He was trying to tell me what's going on there. Like, he lives there. It's his mom that's on drugs. It's his friends that he went to high school with that are on drugs. And he says, these aren't bad people, Bob. I remember he told me that about, you know, seven, eight months ago. These aren't bad people. And I, I thought, here's this kid who's just struggling to figure life out. He's 22 years old. He's been in and out of rehab. And he has more compassion towards these people than I do. And it challenged wow. me to have compassion towards them. Yeah, they're not bad people. We need to go help them and not exploit them like all these call centers and the American addiction centers and cliffside and all this bullshit. Not exploit them for their insurance money or to somehow make money off them, but go there with, with no profit in mind and just go there with compassion and help and, and what the true essence of recovery is. That's what I want Don't Die to be. I mean, why is it that that every time there's an epidemic or a crisis or something, it's when the administration is Republican? You know what I mean? Like with <clears throat> with Reagan, Reagan and, the crack and, then, and the crack thing, and then the AIDS. I with, wonder why that is. And then, and then, you know, I mean, do you think that it's kind of some sort of population control in a way? That <laughs> oh think, my God! Now you sound I, like I swear to God. now you sound like Keith and Pete. <laughs> no, I don't, man. But, but I mean, think about it, right? Population okay. control. So if they don't, if so many people die off of from an epidemic. Those people aren't going to propagate and have children, and then there's well, going to be less population. Are, I wonder what people that are there think. Or I don't think it's. It definitely was a conspiracy by Purdue. If you want to read some fascinating stuff, look at Google Purdue Pharmaceuticals. It's a lot of evidence. I'm talking about doing something about it. No, but the, oh, not like, oh, like reacting so to it. Well, the government, I know that I was on the phone with the White House those two times with Dr. Drew. They don't do anything. They don't, they don't know what to do. And they have a bunch of con artists around them trying to profit off of this. When the government is going to just allot it, I believe a couple weeks ago, finally, after all this talk for a year, $6 billion. Everybody that, that, that was a part of that is, is like a pig to a trough trying to oh get parts of that $6 billion. <laughs> Trust me, it's the scum of the earth that, that lobby and, and hang around Washington. They're never helpers. They're, they're big pharma who has Suboxone, so they have a, a seat at the table to make billions of dollars off, the, off this horrible plague that's on our society. You got rehab con artists and fucking sober, sober bullshit people. I've met them all. They're all full of shit. They all don't do anything. The one thing I'll say about myself is I'm a big advocate and a talker about addiction. I also run groups. I ran a group last night. I run groups. I ran a group on Monday. 
I'm with addicts all the time. What these politicians and these con artists and these lobbyists and all these recovery people and Demi Lovato's sober coach and all these fucking scumbags, what they are is just manipulative, greedy con artists. They are yeah. not on the front lines. They'll say they are because anybody can say they are. The one good thing about about this whole rehab world is you can say anything. It's like kind of like Trump land. You can say anything, and nobody's. It doesn't. None of it matters. None of it is. You know is what I mean? Legally binding. But but you know this idea that I keep listening to these millennials for the last two three years every day every week. Like what the fuck is going on? Why do you guys not get it? It's deadly. I know that people have been telling you it's scary and deadly. I'm not saying not don't do it. I'm not telling you to not do drugs. I'm saying hear the warning sign. The, be cautious. Be mindful. And I try to encourage by the fact that, like when I was 22, I didn't listen to anybody. I didn't give a fuck what anybody thought. But the AIDS epidemic happened, and some junkies told me, don't share needles. And I was like, okay, I won't. And luckily, I, I dodged that bullet, right? Yeah. Because I listened to people around me that I trusted, that I liked, that I respected. It wasn't rehab people. Maybe we could get a slogan or something like, taste first. Taste You know what I mean? Like, do a little taste <laughs> I first. S- I say smoke it first. I don't know why you don't like that. I don't like that. You don't like smoking. Uh, you know, I mean, junkies want to shoot dope. <laughs> that's why they die. That's why they die. They want to shoot the entire bag when they get it. I know, and they but don't what know how powerful that? it is. What motivates that? So one of you the want to get higher than you want to get higher than a motherfucker. That's what motivates that. Yeah, and why? So and, and why don't we get a slogan like "Taste first? Don't you love it? No, it sounds like a, it sounds like an Anthony Bourdain thing. Like what? Food, it sounds like a food thing. Okay, well then, what can we put so, there then? So, but I just, I, I, you know, yeah, we do need a slogan. So anybody out like, there that's got a slogan to help these kids understand, don't return to mock two active use after you've been abstinence for a, abstinent for a while. How about sample then use? Sample and use. Sample and use. <laughs> sample safe it's and a use. A little bit. A little bit. Put a little bit in. Try it. See what's up. Yeah. Safety sample used. But then Dr. Drew will say, well, that's a, if, if the fentanyl is in, say you buy a quarter gram of dope and fentanyl is in one little spot of it, if you pinch off the other spot, of course you're going to do it so highly Can't concentrated. Bu- fentanyl is so highly concentrated that, that uh, you know, like, yeah, uh, it's, it's fucked up. So smoking it. So after Hillel died, which a lot of people listen to the podcast know the rock and roll stories of ours, and we you had a rock and roll. You know what you're getting when you get Mexican tar. That's all I got to say on this subject. No, and but we'll, we were getting we'll China on. white. We were getting white from... Yeah, uh, but I mean, it was all powder. It was all fine, fine, fine powder. No, some of it was really good. Anyways, the point being that after Hillel died, I went to... Did you go to the funeral? You didn't go. I did not. You did not. Me and Rob Graves went together. I was right? using. And I remember Rob was in the back of my pacer. Remember I had that pacer car? Pacer. <laughs> that weird, oh my weird God. big car. And Rob was in the back. Yeah, I, and I, I just remembered that whole pacer That car. pacer. Oh, so my God. The, well, the, that pacer got us a lot of places. It but the, the greatest thing, Hatchback. one time Thelonious was going to 
San Francisco and we, I, we didn't have a van or the monster van had broken down so we were taking cars and D that pacer didn't have air conditioning and Dix was in the back seat of it and if you remember the pacer car had these windows that were like a like a like, like a, a fishbowl yeah. right and it was like 105 degrees <laughs> on the five and I looked back at Dix and he was like gray sitting there and I said you got to get out of the window because the window <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he was just like gray dying of of heat because oh. I think the the pacer glass that hung over the back seat was like a magnifying glass <laughs> of heat. But anyway, Dix is so quiet. Dix, He's yeah, like, he didn't say a word for like two hours, and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw him. And his lips were blue. Oh, and I was Jesus. like, Holy shit, Dix, move to the middle. Yeah, get away from the glass. <laughs> Put the guitar over there. <laughs> yeah, block it somehow. But so at Hillel's funeral, we were driving out. It was very emotional. It was very heavy. I'll never forget it. And and Rob and I and a couple other people were driving in, in, out of Forest Lawn or Mount Sinai right next to it. And I remember I said, I'm never shooting drugs ever again. And Rob was sitting in the back seat and said, yeah, sure. I remember that. Right. And from 1987, when Hillel died, until 1994, when I met Max Smith, I did not shoot drugs. I can tell you that. And that was because my friend who, who I loved, who I cared about, who I shot drugs with, who I knew, who was in my life on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, I had identified that he died from shooting drugs. If he had been smoking them, he wouldn't be dead. I remember yeah. thinking that because it wasn't like... And you like, were very close with Flea and Flea had that same whole yeah, thing. Flea, Flea was, was like gotten adamant, very, fuck all very, this. very fuck adamant. All this. Yeah. So, so I, I just remember, it was, it, I knew there was no way I was going to stop taking drugs. I think a lot of people were influenced to stop taking drugs like Michael, like, like other people. Um, Tony, Hillel's girlfriend. Um, I think Maggie was very profoundly affected by Hillel's right. death and led to her sobriety. So, so you're talking about a group of people that this nuclear bomb goes off in the middle of. And, and you have to acknowledge it. And, and I remember saying, I'm not going to shoot drugs. And I stuck to that for seven years. And, and, and Rob just being so cynical about it, like, yeah, sure. Right? I just never forget that. And then Rob ended up, you know, not 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 surviving his disease so so anyways what i'm saying to kids like listen you can get and i used to smoke it around top jimmy and he would always look at the roof and i go yeah very funny top jimmy loved this joke where i would be smoking it and he'd be shooting it at my house on fountain right and he would look at the roof and go you love getting the ceiling high don't you mr jones uh. you, love, you know how high that ceiling is <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, you burn off a lot of the dope that you could be getting high with. And I was like, listen, only, you know, only getting half of a bag of dope is better than dying from it. I remember thinking that because he would constantly make fun of me that, you know, when you burn it on tinfoil, half of it's going up to sure. the roof and getting the roof high. <laughs> oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> but I'm just trying to kind of come up with these ideas like what's wrong with smoking it? What's wrong with it? You get high? You get way high. I got way high for years and years. Now, does it cost a, culture, a little no, more? It costs a, a little more. There's also a little bit of a culture sort of thing with 
with shooting dope, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, kids, it's like you don't it know makes a lot of these feel, kids. These kids don't feel, have that. They don't have that culture. Really? Just, but okay, well, back yeah, in our so, day, yeah, back in our day, it was a badge of honor, and was, I'm a junkie, and it was yeah. a whole thing, and the little cool boxes that you kept your spoon in, all that. Sure. These kids don't have that. These kids, I asked them like 10 years ago, like there was this little kid, like she, she looked 14. And I was like, how the fuck did you end up, who taught you how to shoot up drugs? She was like 20, but she was really young looking. There was that lost and seen us. And I remember I had her in group and she was a real junkie, right? Yeah. Shooting speed balls and stuff. And I was like, you know, mind if I ask you a question, who taught you how to shoot up? And she's like, I taught myself. And I was like, how does, one, how does one do that? You yeah, too. she told me, yeah, on the internet. Right? She taught herself how to shoot up in her bedroom at her parents' house watching on her phone. Like, that's oh, not God. Top Jimmy showing you how to shoot up and it taking like two months to learn anything. how to do it. You can learn songs from, this <laughs> inter, from YouTube. The, the, you know how to, the internet. Yeah, everybody can play guitar. The internet is an amazing tool that's teaching 14-year-olds how to yeah. shoot up. Well, I taught my, uh, my daughter a little bit about playing guitar, but she's learned a lot from going on YouTube and learning how to play her favorite songs after I showed her how to play guitar and hold her thumb and, you know. Yeah, but, you know. So uh, some of it's good. Yeah, that that idea. And so just to understand, Top Jimmy and Aliki and uh, Anthony kind of taught me how to shoot right, up, sure, right? Sure. And it took me years to get good at it, Right. Cause I, cause well, I always yeah. had somebody around that could do it for me, and I was kind of some scared people of never it. get it. Robin never got it. I always had to shoot up Robin. That's crazy, Robin, you know? right? Yeah, he didn't. He didn't like it, man. He liked the other people, you know. Yeah, it's just like put he your could arm do it. out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that world doesn't exist. Well, Robin anymore. used to like to lay on the couch with his head hanging over the couch and have me shoot him in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> he liked the whole blood down in the head oh thing. My I, it was God. rad, dude. It was so rad. Oh, and, he, and he used to shoot so, he used to put so much in, load up the syringe with so much. It just freaked me out. Or Coke or dope. Both. Yeah. But I mean, just massive, dark. The funniest story I ever have about Robin, because the end was sad, but the life was fun. And he was such a great, heartfelt guy. We're talking about Robin Crosby of Rat, and he was a friend of Mike's. He was over at my house one night, and I told the story. It was just showed you the the world that was coming out of the music world that we all lived in, and interfacing with the world we had all grown up idolizing. Right. So we're sitting. Remember that little couch room I had at, on Fountain at the upstairs apartment. Yes. We're sitting there shooting coke, and I had the TV on, right? And the basketball game was on. It was the Bulls in Detroit. And he's sitting there shooting coke. And he, you know, he wasn't a sports guy, but he, he looked up and he goes, where did, where did they say that game is at? And I was like, at the Salt Palace in Detroit. And he goes, I think I'm playing there like day after tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He like, was. I was like, what? And we're sitting here shooting drugs. Like, dude, shouldn't you be, like, getting prepared? <laughs> right, right. Like, the idea was. that these people that we knew... Somebody that, was preparing for him. Yeah, but these they people that we knew that grew up kind of homeless in Hollywood like us were now playing basketball arenas, but still living the life of the homeless drug addict in Hollywood. It was weird dichotomy. Yeah. And I know the Guns N' Roses guys were doing that. Well, the and, rough and the Chili before, Peppers were doing yeah, that. Before, it was a weird Anthony, thing. Yeah. Like, 
oh my God, we're still acting like these homeless Hollywood junkie kids, yet some of us are playing the Salt Palace Day after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not us. <laughs> but but I really do think that, that... We were still playing Raji's. But I do basement. think that you can change your behavior, but you have to want to. And I think that we have to get through to millennials. You need to change your behavior. The government's not going to save you. Suboxone's not going to save you. Rehab's not going to save you. Institutions aren't going to save you. Your mom's not going to save you. Your fellow brothers and sisters who are addicts are going to save you. Oh, yeah, that's heavy, man, yeah. That's the truth. Like, everybody says, like, you know, you started going to rehab so long, so often. Why? And I said, because my best friend got sober. And he was like, he, he wanted me to be sober. That's what we're supposed to do for one another. We're supposed to nag and irritate and, you know, and until something breaks loose. Yeah. Like, in your case... And drop by and visit when you're, yeah, when, when like, you're sort in of interrupting of the whole... In the middle of it. Drug, like you and uh, Anthony would do for me and you and Smog would yeah. pop over and... Yeah, we uh, we would be. I remember that one time me and Smog came by your house. We were we were we went to you know one of those things, those shindigs, and then we went and ate, and we thought, let's go by Mike's house and see what the fuck he's Pop doing. Pop in there, man. <laughs> and it is kind Interrupt of exciting. That. It's like two sober guys that kind of have boring lives. Yeah, and you're let's like, go see what Mike's yeah, doing. And you're like, and that's what people did for me. I remember Michael K, the t-shirt guy. He tried so many years to try to help me. He would stop by my house and I wouldn't answer the door and he'd climb up the, in the window yeah. and stuff. He was such a great guy. I don't know why he was so hell-bent on me getting sober. I think Keith, Keith wanted me to be sober, right? I think Keith, in all his grumpiness, really does care about his friends and probably and he had gotten sober and he, he probably talked about me and michael lived a couple blocks away from me so he would just stop there because remember he used to print up all the circle jerk shirts right and he lived at fountain and fairfax remember yeah the t-shirt thing he had in the garage sure. and i lived at gardner and fountain so michael would just stop by my house like you want to go to a meeting i was like fuck no i don't want to no. go to a meeting yeah. interrupted why do you music? keep doing this yeah. <laughs> right? just getting high <laughs> Just ruined it. <laughs> just ruined everything. Now I'm gonna feel guilty all night. Yeah. Right. But that one of my favorite tricks was was carrying the big book around and using it for different things, like leaving it on the table. I'd hide my drugs. You know, in that. or put or or like I had a friend, a Wado, that was uh, using, and I was probably six, seven months sober, and I um I used to always go over there and record, and I would use the big book to prop the door open. And, and then in the middle of a session, I'd go, oh, I'm going to go to a meeting. You want to go? And, you know, I'd leave during the uh, middle of the session. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. But pretty soon he got sober. But he, that, he, he couldn't stand. I think the final point was when I paid his electric bill, he thought, wait a minute. What's Mike wrong Mar with Mike, Mike Mart's Mart paying my electric bill <laughs> that, for me? That would make anybody stop in their tracks. <laughs> he was like, hold on here. I think I need to get sober. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Something so, wrong with it. So let's move forward into your musical career. So you get sober and you have this great band that's obviously in the beginning was inspired by the Pogues and Xander was in it, right? Now, Xander was not sober at the time, right? I don't think so. No. So do you think a lot of the friction between you and Xander was kind of in this realm that we're talking about? No, no, I don't think so at all. And Xander wasn't out of control well, there, or anything like that. There was other like sober guys in that band, right? No, not that I know of. I was the only sober guy. 
And I don't think it was inspired by the Pogues. I think it was just we got together, and then when you throw James in anything. In the Pogues. In the Pogues. (laughs) It's going to be like the Pogues, you know? It was American music until James, you know. And And how did James get in it from Xander? Well, Xander, Xander, and those guys. We called them the color. It was James uh, and Dermot and Kieran. Great guys. Love them all. And Xander and I and Tom. So it was supposed to sound like a folk version of Thelonious Monster, but then it, then it, uh, huh? Well, you know, the other part, just the regular, Yeah, two like, guys from Thelonious Monster. It was going to sound somewhat like Thelonious Monster. A little bit, a little bit. And then you bring in the Pogues guys and Dermot, and then it sounds starts sounding like the Pogues. Then what then, did you do? Well, in you know, the end, it didn't sound like the Pogues. The second like album Like the Water the Boys or something. Yeah. You know. It was great. But it I wanted to, I want to confront you on something that I heard about. Okay. Uh, that I was in jail. It wasn't the time that I got sober, but I was in jail, and you were playing Spaceland, and you talked about me being in jail. Is this true or false? I might have. Why <laughs> did I talk about you? <laughs> no, Cause, I because talk- I get out and, and I go to I go to Frenchie's house, and they like Mike Mart played the other night. And he was talking about just shit about really no i didn't talk shit about you what i did is it's okay if you did everybody did i think i wrote a song called i had to leave a friend behind is that me every yeah oh my god i I know that song i thought that the song about rock and roll and us getting along was about me well that too but still no i had to leave a friend behind i always kind of preface it with you know listen i wrote the song about a friend that i you know i had to I had to part ways with a with a dear <laughs> friend of mine, and I won't mention any names. Bob Forrest. That's what I used to. Say. Oh my God! So uh, apparently you were doing that song one night, and I was in jail, it was and a you would heard thing. You would heard. So get get this. I so, mean, I love you dearly. I know, you know, I know that. But and, this is how profound I think people took it wrong. This like is how profound jail was. So that same jail experience. I think it was the first time I was seriously in jail where I couldn't get out. Yeah. Right, and. Anthony wrote a song called My Friend Bob is in jail tonight. Uh, His girlfriend uh, is too, because Stacy got arrested too. Right, okay. <laughs> Did you know that? No. It was a bad night. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine getting arrested with your girlfriend and the drug possession and warrants and car uh, confiscated? And well, what did they say I said bad about you? I don't understand that. The... That, that, that I didn't somehow, care? That I was, no, not that I, you didn't care. That I was in jail and I, I don't... Somewhat, it just seemed like, well, Mike, who was worse than Bob, is now sober and Bob's now Mike and now Mike <laughs> is judging Bob. <laughs> oh. well. You could see how that would look to me and Frenchie and all our junkie buddies that yeah. we're still using. No, right? I, I, I understand. Because we were all envious of sobriety. But when sober people were honest with us, or, you know, I remember the time that Keith and Louie didn't want me to know where they lived. I was so pissed. Right. Like, how dare you? You know, because you come over and steal all the CDs and stuff. They wanted to keep their records. You know, <laughs> some friends were so great. Like, Sal, Sal, the Viper from Sal, was such a great guy he would let me stay at his house overnight or something if i was like homeless or whatever and when we would get to his house because it was after viper and so it'd be like four o'clock in the morning we'd get there and he'd go listen to me i want to be able to go to bed and not worry about my property 
So here's a stack of CDs that you can have. Take these. The only thing. That's great. That's so great. That's so great. I love Sal. Well, Sal's just part hey, of the just gr- give me like 10 CDs, enough to get well and get, you know, in the, tomorrow morning. Like I got 10 CDs. That's four bucks a piece. That's 40 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and he had got them for free. I've already picked them out for yeah, you. I've already picked the Don't ones that these. you can steal. Leave my other ones alone, please. <laughs> Don't That's take great. my good ones. And I, I really was a, I don't want to take people's favorite CDs. Like if right. I grabbed some and it was like what I knew was somebody's favorite, I would put it back. Oh, I It was like a moral, I didn't. a moral thief. I took the most valuable ones I could see. The ones that were like. The greatest know. junkie move I had when Use Your Illusion came out, right? It was the biggest deal in the history of rock music, Guns N' Roses, right? So Mark Cates worked at Geffen and he gave me a vinyl copy of it like before it had come out and he said because he knew i loved guns and roses and he said here i want you to have it but i'm you know i'm pretty sure you're gonna go sell it at errands and just so fucked up if that's what you do bob (laughs) and i was like i would never mark i would never how dare you? I dare you. <laughs> so I did go home and listen to it. This one I still had. Before you sold it. And no, then I went to the record and he had said, it's not released yet. If it gets out in a record store, it's going to be trouble for me. And I had concern. I cared about that. So I let records, I found this hustle. Only Bobby Buckskin could figure out. Oh my if God. they paid me 20 bucks, they could play the record while I stayed in the record store. And then they'd give me the record back. And I'd go to, so I went to Aaron's, Renee's, um rockaway and let and rockaway didn't really want to do it but aaron's and renee's gave me 20 bucks to let them play the album in the record store and they made announcements That's we have genius. the new guns and roses record we're going to play for you right now it's the only copy released to the public and i got 20 bucks oh, for letting them play it. and then eventually i sold it for like Such 100 an bucks entrepreneur i sold it for like 100 bucks to a guns and roses fanatic yeah right i love it and so you know what I what I'm really trying to say is there was a community of love, a community of compassion, a community of 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 there was just a community of drug addiction that I don't think exists in this new generation of drug addicts. I think it's isolative. I think it's technological. I think you can be a junkie and not ever interact with any other junkie. I think it's so sad and obviously causes the isolation of the drug addiction community right now causes and the lack of communication and lack of community causes this death rate so us sober people need to go and create that with the using community i truly believe that what is that what and this whole thing that sober people don't want to be about around using addicts because they're scared they're going to use i'm not scared i'm going to use it looks so sad a lot That's of the right. people that say that don't do it, so they don't know what it feels like to be in it. I've been in front. I was at a friend of mine's house, and he, I was taking him to rehab, and he had, was shooting coke, and he had one last spoon of dope, and he was planning on like, you know, doing his coke, and then he'll do the dope, and then he'll get in the car with me, right? Well, you can imagine if he's been shooting coke all night, his hands are a little shaky, and he's trying to suck it up, and he can't get the dope, and I said, give me that. And I set the dope up from, and I, I said, here, dude, like, yeah. and I got, you know, the bubble out, you know, I got it, I hit it, and you know, what you do with a syringe of He dope. thought you were romanticizing <laughs> about it. And I was like, here, 
fucking do it. Come on, let's get you to rehab. And he did it. And then I drove him to American Hospital. Then my car broke down on the way back. And he got, he checked in, checked out, and got home and was doing drugs before I got home. Yeah. I love that. I mean, and yeah, if you're you going to get mad about that, I wasn't mad about that. I was like, and, and this was early on in my sobriety. I was like, that is so rad that, that I just spent my whole day trying to get him into rehab. I loaded the syringe for him to get dope, to, to do his dope so we could get in the car and yeah. go to rehab. And you he, love being sober. I, and and I just no, thought it was no funny. Attraction. I thought it was funny. Like Max thought I would be mad. I wasn't mad because she knew about it. I got home finally. And she's like, I go, well, at least he's in. And she goes, right. he's not in. He's uh, Jolie called. He's back home. <laughs> oh, my and I started laughing. I just thought that was so rad. How do you get back from Pomona faster than me? <laughs> right. Right, that's good. That's a junkie. That's right. That's and so I just want to inspire you sober people. Get out there. Don't be scared of people that are using. They're suffering and sad. The, the book that everybody treats like a Bible says we can go anywhere and do anything in, at any time if our intentions are right. I believe that line. If my intentions are to go and help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety... I have nothing to fear. They can't make me drink with them. They can't make me use. If they in, don't have the plague. If you're I, in love with sobriety, that's what's going to happen. You're going to you're, you're not going to be attracted to You're not going to gonna be taken down by it. Now, if you aren't solid, then don't go. But exactly. I think there's a lot of solid people using that excuse to not go interact with the using community. To be lazy and recover. Yeah, just to hide behind it and be a big shot and talk yeah. and whatever. And and the times that I've been around using addicts, they're so loving. They it, like if if you hit the right moment, they're so envious and they so want to be a part of the other side of the light of the positivity. They do. And they recognize that you've gone out of your way and you're coming into their kind of risky world. Like when me and Anthony would go to your house or Anthony would come to where I was. At, on, I remember one time I had just taken a hit of crack and there's a knock on the front door at, at uh, the girl I wrote, the trust fund girl song that died. Um, mm. Oh fuck! I forget. I used to, I loved her. She was so great. Anyways, I was at her house on Beechwood, and I had just taken a hit of crack, and somebody knocked on the door. And you know, you're kind of paranoid, cops or whatever. And the door wasn't locked, and then opened it as Anthony walks in. Uh, I was like, "How the fuck do you know where I am?" Oh and my I'm God. getting a rush of coke, yeah. and he's like, "Come on, we, uh, come on, we gotta go. You gotta go. Come on." And he took me to rehab. Nice. Like he didn't fear like. Oh, I'm going to use crack if I'm around Bob. Right. We got to stop all those lies that, yeah, that I think you're saying, create. It's just that we want to be lazy. Yeah. We want to not do the hard stuff of helping others. We want to do the easy stuff, which is share at meetings, raise our hand when there's asked if anybody will sponsor anybody. Yeah, right. Right? And not and go out to Junkie's the... house and, and fucking sit there with him for an hour and a half trying to talk some sense into him. That's the hard work of recovery. I'll give you an example of how easy it is. My nephew called me about a friend of his, right? And, I, you know, I was like, okay. He said, if you know, if there's any way you can reach out to the guy or whatever. So I called him yesterday. I had a great conversation for like an hour. It was easy. I was driving from here to Malibu, 
As soon as I got out on baseline where I have reception, I called, I pushed on the number of the text that the guy, that my nephew sent me. Guy answered. I said, hey, it's Bob Forrest. I, you know, my nephew gave me your phone number. We talked all the way until I got to Canaan on the 101 going to Alla where you can't get reception, right? right? I said, listen, I'm about to go into an area where I don't got reception, but let's just keep in touch and, and uh, you know, and text and whatever I can do to help. I think that guy's going to get sober. I really do. I had a great conversation with him. He, he understands things. He's at that place where, you know, I just, I just have faith. And I didn't, I didn't use markers to decide whether he's worthy of my attention or help, like right. 12 Steppers do. We didn't talk about the steps. We talked about powerlessness. He just doesn't want it. We, yeah, he just doesn't want it. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about powerlessness and how hard that is to accept. It's hard to accept powerlessness, right? It is. We yeah. live in a society of control, and then we're proselytizing something that's so opposite of our minds that we're we don't have control nobody right? likes to admit nobody that. likes to admit that right no and so these are just the conversations you can have and but but the more interesting conversation all i have is people not dying and building community and reaching out and i think needle exchanges and social services departments and just real grassroots kind of organizations are doing a better job at helping and reaching out to the using addict community than the actual 12-step community is and that's sad right when a needle exchange has more contact with the, the suffering and dying than the people who have received the gift of sobriety that's sad yeah you know what i mean and sometimes it's the same people but a lot of times it's not Hey, here's one. Hi, my name is Dan. Blah, blah, blah. I'm from Duluth, Minnesota. I just left you a long voice message. See, here it's happening right now because I give my phone number out everywhere I go. So if you didn't you give it out you, on the show. Yeah. I, so let's see who this guy is. Let's hear the voicemail. I mean, we don't have to put it on the air if it's um, no. If it's, do we? No, no, no. You just go ahead and and do whatever Wait, you're gonna do. Where did it go? Holy shit, where did it go? I think I just deleted it by accident. Oh my God, the guy's going to die. Oh, oh my God. God. Good job, Bob. How the fuck did that happen? I am such a retard. <laughs> Way to get to, involved. Uh, oh, wait, no, no, no. Here it is. Here it is. Uh, my name is, I'm a listener to your podcast and to uh, Dr. Drew, your You Live podcast. I listened to your episode where you were talking about depression and I decided to you a call i'm kind of going out on a limb here but man i um don't suffer with the suicidal piece of it but um i just wanted to reach out to you and say that listening to you and listening to drew talk about i have a pretty severe childhood trauma um i've been sober now for uh coming up on uh, what is it, a year and a half at the end of it was december of 2016 and um listening to your stuff while i'm doing construction is uh awesome i would love Someday, my, one of my life bucket lists is to be on the You Live podcast with you and Drew and talk about my walk with uh, childhood sexual abuse. I had three perpetrators. Uh, Mom was on drugs in the 80s. And um, anyway, I just wanted to thank you big time for the podcast you put out, the time you spent to do it, 
Um, and you've said a couple things that I'd like to share with you that have helped me a ton, just simple things. Um, but anyway, I hope, uh, I hope this uh, message treats you well. And I hope that, uh, I hope to hear back from you. I saved your number in my phone as, uh, as Bob, Bob Forrest. So if you give me a call back, I'll definitely answer. Um, if you miss me, I'll give you a call back. But Bob, I really appreciate you. I know you sent out your number out there and I hope, uh, hope to hear back from you. My phone number's. How cool is that? So that's cool. We'll take his name out. Right. Yeah, take his name out. But how cool is that? That's uh, so cool. Good. So, you know, here's here's the thing. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That just makes you feel good. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know. This guy just reach out to people and talk about shit that nobody else talks about. Nobody wants to talk about sexual abuse. And no. that's how we meet all these great people yeah. like Patrick and the Don't Die Wisconsin guys. Now we're going to meet them in person or you're going to meet them in person. And they'll probably come out here at some point. Yeah, they'll be know. out here. But let me tell you, and let me Bobo tell you this. From Ca- Bobo, California, the Don't Die was Sacramento is doing a great job. And, you know, we'll probably meet him someday. And you know, But here's I mean, here's the thing. I, 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 I did something about five six seven years ago i took a chance i got a lot of criticism from my friends of being critical of what's going on both in rehab and the 12-step world and and i just been talking about what i think and what i've experienced and what i'm going through for the last five to seven years and it seems to have a positive impact on people right the people who are criticizing me constantly what you know why why i'm just a guy trying to trying to say hey i don't think the thing that that helped me is helping people as well as it used to i like i'm going to try something different like through media and through podcasts and through television and through rehab and through music i want to i want you know people to build a sense of community people think that you know they they realize that you're influential and stuff and they want to put their opinion in there like oh i don't agree with him boy you know because he's influential breaking my anonymity and i've told them all read the 11th tradition that world doesn't exist anymore anonymous it's just ridiculous. It's outdated. Everybody knows what AA is. If AA fails, it's not a reflection of AA being a failure. There's millions of success stories. Yeah. Or I don't get or, it. Or, you know, what the 11th tradition says, if I break my anonymity, there's a risk that I could lose my sobriety. Why wouldn't you have compassion for somebody who might lose their sobriety? Why would you I know? I mean, I don't cri- get it. Why would you've you convinced me. You've convinced me, yeah. you know, that it's not that hurting it is, anybody. It's, it's not hurting anybody. They don't even know their own program. We have a very good friend who doesn't even know his own program, though he's been in it for over 30 years. And that is that when you read the 11 tradition of why not to do that, it's not about harm to AA. The AA was not worried about AA's reputation if somebody broke their anonymity. They were worried about that person's mental health, that person's ability to stay sober. They were not saying it's going to be bad for AA. There's nothing in the 11th tradition that said this would make people not believe that AA works. It does not say that, though that's always the criticism I get. 
that people are going to think AA doesn't work or AA's not, no good. If it or failed whatever. for this person who was actually who was saying they were a part of it, that it's a reflection on AA. Listen, I can tell you, and the and people don't want to know statistics. Statistically, about one percent of the population you went to rehab in the 1980s and 1990s. In the late 1990s, with the the kind of explosion of of I think rock and roll leading the way from 94 when Kurt Cobain and all those guys die and it becomes kind of cool to be sober there's an increase and uptick in the percentage of the population that gets some sort of mental health and addiction treatment to three percent of the population right now eight percent of the population has had some sort of treatment for mental health or addiction it's gone up five percent in 20 years that is millions of people so by this time the thing that that rehab feeds out into the 12-step world, they literally should be having meetings at Dodger Stadium. There has been tens of millions more people introduced to the ideas of sobriety and recovery and abstinence over the last 20 years that there should be tens of millions of people in 12-step groups, and they are not. And why 12-step people don't recognize that or acknowledge that, that something is wrong with the, the appeal of it, baffles me. It would, I guarantee I've read everything that Bill Wilson ever wrote. I've read everything about Bill Wilson, including a great book called The History of AA, Not God, The History of AA. Bill Wilson would be thinking about this. Bill Wilson would be talking about this. Bill Wilson would be concerned about this. That there are tens of millions of more addicts and alcoholics in America than ever before. Yet the the at the membership of 12-step groups has remained stagnant over the last 15 years. There's a big problem. But, yeah, but I don't know the you. statistics or anything. I know that, you know, I know that it has to change. There's well, it's and, and, and young ideas and people that, you know, they don't want to deal with the some old timer telling them they can't do this and there are archaic rules about this and that and stuff they can't do. It's like and then, being, you know what I had a, a millennial a couple of years ago describe to me because I, I really like this kid and I thought he was a hardcore junkie and he just needs to do the old fashioned way, right? I kept bombarding him. He kept going. And one day he came back when he was living in Beach, where he came back and he goes, Bob, it's like being a member of the Shriners, kind of. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, really think about it. What 19 year old, what 19 year old just drinks? There's no young people that just drink oh God. anymore. In the uh, olden we, days, in 1935, they drank. If, yeah, it's they drank. It was having that conversation is retarded. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> Call it's me. like are you calling me? No, no, but that that conversation was for the 80s. That conversation is yeah. ridiculous to oh. have now, you know, but, but you know, the open-minded people of the 80s are like, yeah, it's all the same thing. It's all the same shit. This is yeah, spiritual right. malady. Right, right, right. It's not a matter what thing you do. It's the malady. malady. It's the spiritual malady, right? And so, you know, I don't know how to uh, to to tell you that you can make a difference. You, listening to this podcast, can make a difference. Tonight, when you're driving home, just call a a person you know that was sober and isn't sober anymore. Reach out. Just call them and say, hey, man, I was thinking of you. All this, people don't know how to communicate. I just call and say, hey, man, it's Bob. I wonder what you're doing. I was thinking of you. 
That, and that's the truth. It doesn't have to be, hey, you know, how are you doing? And all stumble bumbly. Be a friend. Be a friend to people. Reach out to people. They're hurting. Yeah. They're sad. And you were hurting. And you were sad. You owe it to the universe. All right? So, till next time. Till next time, Bob. Bob.